Welcome to the Second in Command podcast, produced by the COO Alliance and brought to you by its founder, Cameron Harold. In the Second in Command podcast, we talk to top COOs who share the insights, strategies, and tactics that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Miles has more than 15 years of experience leading critical and operational support, including project delivery, technology, people, and culture. With a professional background in administration, finance, and technology, Miles brings a blended experience of organizational process and operational delivery. Miles' background in operations ranges from large scale procedural companies to early stage startup environments. This common thread in his work in both types of organizations is a high level of people centricity and building systems to support people in their work. Miles earned a Bachelor of Arts in English from the University of California, Riverside, and is a certified project manager. He's active in a number of professional organizations, including the Mankind Project, a nonprofit training organization that offers life-changing experiential training for men, and the Operators Guild, a national organization for senior-level operators to share expertise and best practices. Miles lives in Oakland with his wife and three-year-old daughter, and his favorite activities are cooking, playing music, guitar, bass, drums, piano, and vocals. Well, maybe we'll have to get you to play. Miles, welcome to the Second in Command podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I'm a, a, a big cooking fan as well. What's your favorite dish? If you had to make one more dish for friends before you die, what's it going to be? Pizza. Nice. It's one of the hardest things I know how to make too. And is it like you make the crust and everything? Yeah, everything from scratch. What's going on? Well, nowadays we eat vegan, so it's uh, just a really good tomato sauce and some roasted vegetables. My wife made vegan cheese from scratch, and we put that on one time, which is pretty good, but not really worth the effort. Yeah. Are you doing like, uh, what are you doing for the dough? Are you doing just like a like no egg in the dough, or are you doing like cauliflower crust or something? Or yeah, No, just there's no, no dairy or anything in the dough. I use a recipe from the pizza Bible from Tony's Pizza out here in San Francisco. It's a two-day process. It's pretty meticulous. Nice. And I get it wrong about half the time. So. <laughs> um, one, one child so far, how's, how's it uh, living through COVID and, and managing a business? Are you working from home right now through all this? Yeah, we both work from home. And we're fortunate that our daughter's daycare is small enough that it was able to open up in June earlier this year with some pretty strong controls that have worked out pretty well so far. Okay, lucky. I can't, I, my, I'm lucky my kids are 19 and 17. So I'm just like, they get up, they do their thing. They leave the house They're They go and pick up groceries for me. I'm in good, good yeah. stage, thankfully. So yeah. can, can you tell us a little bit about WRH so we know kind of what kind of the company is and, um, and what your role is there? Yeah. So WRA is a 40 year old environmental consulting services company based out of the Bay area uh, in San Rafael started, uh, primarily focused on um, wetlands research. That's what WRA stands for, Wetlands Research Research Associates. And uh, the founder, Mike Jocelyn, is uh, an expert in wetlands delineation and also been instrumental in defining policy around how to protect wetlands, how to define them, all of the science behind it. So he's built the company around his uh, academic and, and intellectual research. And the company has just been going ever since we've diversified a lot since then. Um, so a lot of, a lot of different service lines from, uh, drone surveys, uh, GIS, uh, all sorts of 
biological uh, botany assessments and also moving into mitigation banking, which is a little bit like, um, if you think of like uh, carbon credits, it's a little mm -hmm. bit like that, a lot more complicated, but it's a similar type of idea. And we do a lot of work with that to help um, offset impact to the environment for different types of development and that sort of thing. This might be a weird, weird question, or I don't know if it's controversial, but do you buy into the whole like carbon credits or those offsets, or would you rather that companies actually, you know, got their shit together and cleaned up their own backyard instead of buying somebody else's credits? So there's a difference there that matters in the answer to your question. With carbon credits, yes, the uh, I think it's kind of a foolish model. Um, we can get into a whole conversation about pollution and the role of corporate irresponsibility versus consumer responsibility. With mitigation banking, what's really more powerful is that it's very localized. Mm. And so mitigation banking is a little bit more um, direct. So the idea behind mitigation banking is that if you are going to impact the natural environment, uh, you need to positively impact in equal measure uh, in the immediate local environment in the to balance out that. So it, it has much more uh, relevance because it's generally in the similar habitats, similar geographies. It's not okay. some place, you know, thousand miles away where you're just theoretically offsetting some impact. It actually uh, directly relates to the local environment that you're dealing with. Is that like the tree planting companies that cut down trees, then they have to do reforestation? Is that the similar idea? That's a very simple uh, analog. Um, it's it's pretty complicated, so it's it's highly regulated based on the local geography and certain um, certain native species and what sort of impacts. And there are different types of credits depending on uh, what is available. So, for example, um, you know, someone might own a piece of property that was developed many many years ago, and it looks untouched today, but it's not really native anymore. And they might be able to invest in um, bringing back in certain native species or improving the water flow of natural waterways through that property and things like that will, will have um, very systematic uh, positive impacts to the, to the local habitat and environment for different plant and animal species. Yep. So it's, it's not just so brute force of like cut down a tree, plant another tree. It's a little bit more nuanced than that. Interesting. God, I wish my grandfather was doing this interview instead of me. He won the Conservationist of the Year Award in Canada back in the early 70s, and he was big in, in wetlands and um, restocking lakes up in northern Canada and also did a lot up in the Arctic. I remember, I'm going to guess it was 76 or 77, and he was talking to us as kids. I was 10 at the time, and he was talking to us about the, uh, the Arctic getting warm and oh, wow. warmer than his memory of back in the 30s and 40s and 50s, he, he honeymooned in the Northwest Territories in the early 40s, like ridiculous. <laughs> um, so he was up there every year. And in the, in the mid 70s, he was talking about the climate change and what it was doing and impacting. Um, and he was really upset about it. And all of his friends thought he was crazy. But he was, he was really into this stuff. How did you get involved in WRA then? Was this like a, a, just a job or did you have some passion around you know, the environment? Yeah, so for, for me, there's two threads. One is my professional background, and then one is my industry background. And so my professional background is really the thing that brought me to WRA. Um, I've been in administration, um, various levels, progressively through my career. So that's the, the common thread, but I've moved industries uh, kind, of, kind of a lot. Um, started in uh, for-profit education uh, in the earlier part of my career, and you know, fairly 
fairly low level stuff and just kind of moved up the ranks over time and ended up at a, a federal school program, Job Corps. There's a campus out here in the Bay Area on Treasure Island and I worked there for six years and moved up to administration management. And then um, I, I wanted to get out of that industry. It's kind of its own industry. So I uh, went to work for an ed tech company, which was kind of the thing to do in the Bay Area and did that for a couple of years. And so there was this education theme to it, but really what was what was mattering there was the progressive uh, increase of responsibilities around admin and operations. And so um, I left that company and went to work for a consulting firm that we had worked with as clients. And I went to work for the firm as an employee and, and as a director of operations. And so that's where I got started in professional services and um, spent a couple of years there and then just was introduced to WRA at just the right time in my career and where they were as a company and met with the the leadership team at the time uh, and just hit it off with them and been there ever since. It's coming up on a year, so it's still pretty new. Yeah. Um, would would EdTech cover the Khan Academy? Would that fall under the education technology? Mm-hmm. We, we had the COO of, of the Khan Academy on as a guest about a year and a half ago on the podcast nice. as well. Yeah, that was. I was at the TED conference when Saul launched um, the kind of Khan Academy to the world, and I remember Tim Draper stood up and he walked out into the hallway and he he called his the school that his kids were at, and he basically said like, if we don't start using the Khan Academy inside of our school, I'm pulling my kids and I'm pulling funding. I'm like, damn, you really like that guy's talk. That was. Pretty, wow. I just thought he was. I thought it was kind of cool. I didn't. I didn't like jump all over it like that. But it was neat. What What was your first ninety days like at WRA? So uh, I spent a ton of time getting to know people my first 90 days. Um, it's a, about a 90-person company. And I think in my first 90 days, I spent 20-plus um, hours interviewing staff, about an hour each. And some of, those, some of that involved a bit of travel. So it was kind of half my job for the first 90 days was meeting with people and just picking their brains. I had a series of uh, questions. I... I roughly followed the first 90 days book um, and went through some questions from there and had had a kind of a point for point list of things that I wanted to cover with each person and synthesized a lot of that to just get an understanding of the company. One of the things that's really big at WRA is the personal relationships of the people that work there. It's very clearly uh, top three reasons that people love working there. And um, it almost, almost exceeds the technical nature of the work working in the environment, even though all of our people are scientists and environmentalists, um, the relationships that they have are still neck and neck as the top reason that they love working there. And so that was made very clear to me before I even started. So I invested a lot in getting to know those folks. There was a lot of transition too. So um, not a lot of crossover with my predecessor. And so there was kind of a hit the ground running on on a fast moving sidewalk kind of thing. Um, just trying to figure out how things were were running when I got there and then trying to figure out how they needed to change, but uh, trying to balance the um, the desire to change things quickly while also just taking it a little steady. That was, I, I would say, has been my main challenge. Yeah, I'm curious, how, how did you socialize the fact that you were going to spend so much of your time in that first period with the, the leadership team? Like, how did you get them to buy into the fact that you were going to be spending, you know, 20 hours a week just talking to people and, and not doing anything, right? Yeah. Well, because it was so clear to uh, our CEO, Jeff Smick, that, that 
for, I mean, he'd been there 15 years. He came up through the company. So this was not, uh, this was not just simply an understanding. It was a firsthand experience for him of how important the relationships were at the company or are at the company and how meaningful that is. Uh, a lot of people have been there a long time. And um, so it was, it was not necessarily something I had to pitch and get anybody to buy into. It was more a recognition of what their expectations were and what their hopes were. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a little bit of a, of a history of, um, well, the company was growing. So let me, let me back up a little bit on the story. So over 40 years, the company was, you know, between 10 and 40 people for the majority of that time. And in the last five to 10 years, we essentially doubled in size. Now in the Bay area, people talk about scaling and that kind of thing. It's not exactly that level of growth, but it was enough that, that the, the people that had been there for 10 plus years felt that it had done a 180 degree turn totally. from being what they loved and knew their whole career. And um, there's a good mix of people that are in the intermediate stage where they kind of had been there through that transition, um, but you know, liked the company as it was. So nobody was really looking for a turnaround when I got there, but there were some, uh, there were some, some real challenges in operations and some real issues. And they were more related to uh, personal connection and and the people centricity that that you mentioned in my intro there. Um, I mean that was just, that was the thing that clicked when I met with Jeff uh, and the leadership team in the interviews is that was sort of the the secret ingredient to our connection is that my understanding of the how valuable those relations relationships are matched what they were really suffering from. Why did the organization grow? Was it um, growing in terms of the markets that you were operating in or was it different products that you were getting involved in? Yeah, I mean, I'm going to toot our own horn here is that WRA has a really exceptional relationship. We do really good work. We have really good relationships with people long term. And just over time, that becomes more and more uh, valuable as a company. And, And we're just able to organically grow by virtue of literally people calling us up, asking us to help them out and uh, work with them. And over time, we've just been able to add more and more people to the company. And environmental consulting is also an interesting industry in that there is a, there are a lot of specialties. There are a lot of companies that do one thing. Mm. And so to do a project, you might need to work with two, three, four companies. And over time, if you're doing enough of that work, you can add people to staff and just bring that work in-house. And so that was actually one of the most shocking things for me culturally is to see the diversity of services that we offer and how much specialization each person had. And so over time, just, just by virtue of pushing, pushing out a little bit, we're able to bring people in and then expand even further. Makes sense. Who, who are your customers? Is it the private businesses or is it government or is it a bit of both? Yeah, it's, it's quite a mix. I, I'm kind of regretting not having a spreadsheet up here while we're talking actually, but um, it's a mix of municipalities, private investors, some real estate development, um, some, uh, you know, we work with uh, lawyers quite a bit when they're dealing with land deals and um, sort of a network of people where sometimes that's our entree into projects where they're representing clients that are trying to do development efforts or, you know, we, we got a call recently, this is sort of an oddball, but we got a call recently about someone who wants to build a home that will be um, essentially invisible through technology <laughs> they want to understand it's a very weird project but you know there's a representative of that person and they they want to understand the environmental impact of that type of a project and i don't know if we'll actually do that project it's just top of mind because it came in this week 
but you know, a really cool project that's um, representative of uh, municipalities is uh, York Creek up in wine country, uh, just north of the Bay Area here. Mm-hmm. So there's a hundred year old dam there that is, you know, obviously not top notch engineering. And um, the silt from the dam has been affecting the habitat running downstream and affecting the, the trout population and that kind of thing. And um, so that's a that's a municipal effort to upgrade that dam to restore the quality of that waterway through a, a very premium area of the state. And um, it's not recreational necessarily, it's to bring it back to a natural habitat. And, and that's a really exciting project for us, a restoration project. It's funny though, when you, when I'm, this is gonna show how Canadian I am, but when you said there was a dam, I was like, oh, a beaver dam. <laughs> like I, didn't even, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think like a human made dam. All I switched to was like, <laughs> all I can see was like these hundreds of beaver dams that my grandfather would be showing me over, over my time out in the bush with him. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is completely bizarre. So the, the, the transition from the predecessor over to you, did you ever have to un- unwind any of the projects or like completely, you know, turn people in a, in 180 degrees? Uh, I wouldn't say unwind, you know, I didn't dismantle things, but part of the growth, the, the entry point for me into the company was this sort of moment in the company's history where um, the company was essentially homegrown. So predominantly scientists with a background in environmental sciences, PhDs, master's degrees, you know, biologists, botanists, that kind of thing. And over time, as the company grew, a lot more of the management functions of the company were taken on by people with those sorts of backgrounds. And so the, basically the, the company had gotten to a scale that, uh, that was no longer sustainable. And so my, my predecessor had a science background, was excellent with clients, field work, that kind of a thing. But the, the scope of the operational demand for the company was just too, too great to be able to manage both um, mm. arenas simultaneously. It, it really probably should have changed many years ago, but um, you know, they, they tried their best and did a lot of hard work to, to grow the company and keep it together, but it just got to a point where we needed to separate those two things out. So it wasn't so much about dismantling things or shutting things down as really just trying to get organized around things and building structure that would be able to take us to the next hundred people over the next Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned that there was some change from the 50 to 90. I talked to somebody about a year ago and they said that the defined transition points in a company are the ones and threes it's like from one person to three, from three to 10, 10 to 30, 30 to 100, 100 to 300. So 90 is in that stage where, you know, politics starts to creep in a little bit. There's some people showing up. You're not quite sure what their name is. You know which business area they work in, but you don't really know their name or you don't know anything about them. Um, Was there any politics starting in the business when you were there or is there any now? Um, The kind of the jockeying for position or? Yeah, yeah. You know, Prior to my arrival, the company went through a, about a year and a half uh, reflection process, uh, uh, worked with a consultant to do organizational assessment and kind of take a look at what was what was working well, what was not going well. So there was a restructuring that occurred um, six months or so before I arrived. And that, that, that actually is what prompted the position being changed to become available for me. And that's when recruiting started. And but what also happened is that um, the company had been organized around functional uh, technical function. And there was a huge misbalance uh, of, across the, the size of teams. Also, some teams were just five, six times larger than other teams. Yep. And um, there was a 
long story short, there's a re restructuring to move towards more um, sort of like units, like smaller units, and we call them project delivery teams that are a little bit more cross-functional. And then there's a couple teams that are more specialized on purpose. And so I would say that it was not highly politicized or highly political when I got there, but there was sort of this, the, the dust was sort of settling on that change and people were, were figuring out what it means to be in those new roles. And so some people had become team leaders who were not prior and some people had stopped being team leaders who were prior. Yep. So there was a little bit of a interesting shift there, but by the time I arrived, most people had pretty much, uh, that, that transition had pretty much occurred. Happened, yeah. Yeah. And then my role was kind of like the last role to change. Now also concurrently though, the, the CFO was retiring shortly after I arrived. And so there's a new VP of finance as well. So oh. two out of four of the executive team switched over in the same quarter, basically. That's a lot a of change ago. at the executive team level at the same time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Make people nervous. Uh, I don't know that people felt nervous about the change, but they, there has been some anxiety uh, about the impact of processes and procedures and how things work. There's been a, there's been a lot of disruption to that because there's very little transition between uh, those two roles switching over. So, sure. uh, you know, this is sort of a silver lining or kind of a funny way to spin a positive out of a negative, but uh Thankfully, uh, coronavirus hit about two or three months later, and so all sense of normalcy went out the window. So we don't really have a strong sense of baseline of what things could be like if there wasn't so much transition. Um, but it has that has multiplied the um, the stress of any sort of organizational change, meaning we're already experiencing so much external change in how we work, you know, sure. and what it's like to be a person in the world today. Uh, that any changes within the company just sort of multiply Multiplied. the level yeah. of anxiety and tension that that creates. So the name of the game right now is slowing things down. Uh, and that's been a little tough because I came in really wanting to figure out what was what we were going to do differently and kind of right. get the lay of the land and then start putting together plans and executing. And I, I really had to take a step back. And slow that's interesting. Down. What about um, the, the, the whole kind of, COVID timing have you had to um, kind of adopt or adopt? I guess one is like you said, slowing down. Were you guys a, a location-based business and are you now remote or were you partially remote before or fully remote? Where were you on that? So we, uh, we've been based in San Rafael, which is just north of the Golden Gate Bridge uh, for 40 years. Um, a while back, we started branching out into um, Emeryville, which is East Bay, Oakland area. And then Petaluma, which is about an hour north of that area. Basically, we had people that were commuting into San Rafael. And once we got to a certain size, we opened up offices that were further out from that office. Yeah. And then we started attracting more people in those regions as well. So we started becoming sort of a multi-geographic company. And then a few years back, we also opened a San Diego office. So we, we had become accustomed to the fact that we didn't all work in one building, which was helpful. Yep. Um, thankfully, you know, that, that sort of type A, let's whip this place into shape kind of thing, you know, in the first quarter that I was there, first five months, you know, I was doing that as much as I could while also trying to, to take the time to get to know people. But there was a lot of technology debt. And um, it, we kind of got lucky in that in the, you know, by the end of February, which was about four months after I started, five months after I started, we had 
implemented uh, Slack as a chat system. We had replaced an older video conferencing system with a newer with with Zoom, um, and the old one was essentially dysfunctional. We couldn't really do video conference meetings successfully. So if you weren't in the room, you were suffering. And um, and then we also switched over to a, a commercial cloud file system instead of an in-house system, which was really helpful because we don't have people maintaining things in-house right now. And so and that all of that happened pretty much. We finished all of that like weeks before shelter in place started hitting, and it was just the timing was remarkable. Right. So th- the point of what I was saying there though is that we kind of had our foot in the door for distributed teams. Yep. But we weren't really thinking like how do you really do that well. And we got the technology infrastructure and what coronavirus has done is now put us on the, the trajectory. What does it mean to be distributed long-term? How distributed, you know, how do we shift our interactions and our processes to not just accommodate that, but to capitalize on it? So that's, that's kind of the question now. Interesting. With the multiple locations you were in or multiple cities that you started expanding into, was that as a result of trying to compete for talent in the Bay area or, um, was it just that, that you were finding certain talent and that, that moved you into other zones? What was the reasoning for that originally? So before I answer it, let me just say I'm, I'm reverse engineering and understanding of something that was happening in the five years prior to my arrival. So uh, I might have this a little off, but my, my view of it is that um, the, the tech industry has particularly disproportionate salaries. Uh, and so what, what you might call traditional industry, people are making sometimes, you know, lower end, sometimes higher end, but there, but it's not competitive uh, relative to the tech industry. So there's not a lot of crossover for people switching between the industries, but when it comes to real estate, that's where you see it. And so what, what we started seeing is that people were just moving a little bit further and further away. So somebody might've started working for the company, renting an apartment in San Francisco, but when they bought a house, they moved the right. other direction or moved inland and things like that. And, um, some people just, you know, lived kind of out in the country and didn't mind commuting and they did that for a long time, but you know, that got harder and harder also. So what would have been a 45 minute commute is now an hour and 15 minute commute and yeah. that becomes untenable. No longer works. Yeah. And then, you know, when, once we, once we opened those offices, we saw people moving to those areas more, more readily and we were able to attract people more readily to those areas. So like, for instance, when I first got introduced to the company, I first thought there in San Rafael, like, Oh, that's going to be a little rough for me. And, you know, that was just my initial thought thinking about that. But then, I, you know, Emeryville is just down the street for me. And that made a huge difference in the, in the initial entry and thinking about the company. So you, you've lived in the Bay area for 20 years, you mentioned earlier, and, and um, you know, you've obviously got some experience working around this, but how do you compete with companies that are prepared to just throw an extra zero on the, on the salary with people or, you know, maybe not an extra zero, but they're paying twice or 50% more than market when you're not in the tech space, or even if you are, how do you, how do you compete and attract talent without just cutting a bigger check? Well, we don't really directly compete because of the industry we're in. So they're very, very, I don't know of a single person with the type of educational background that the majority of our company has that work in the tech industry. They just, the tech industry just hasn't really touched the environment much. Um, where it, where it starts to get a little bit more competitive is with what you might call back office people or the operations people, the more right. like me, a little yeah. bit more general. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, you know, like the ITP or like a couple of computer people or some marketing people or operations people, generalists, how do you compete for those people? Yeah, it's kind of a mixed bag. So for me, um, when I was in the tech industry, I was at a, a fairly junior 
level. Um, one thing I noticed about the tech industry is that they, they don't value management experience if it's not in the tech industry. So the equivalent in the tech industry is much more junior to what it would be outside of that industry, which is um, kind of understandable, but a, a little strange. Um, but uh, so for me, there's just much more of a of a human side to it. So for instance, you know, if you're talking to someone who's in a, in a generalist kind of role in the tech industry, they're going to be experiencing sort of a constant grind to exponentially grow. Um, what I experienced was sort of the opposite. You know, I started at a company that was on the upward trajectory of thriving. And by the time I left, they were on a downward trajectory of uh, shrinking. And so what I experienced was uh, a year of building systems and then a year and a half of breaking those systems down into smaller modules that could be handled by less people with less demand. And that was a really ungratifying experience. Um, so there's this sort of anxiety that I, that I correlate to um, the tech industry that is, um, I want to be a little careful about what I say here because I don't want to be overly negative, but it's, it's really easy not to like the tech industry. Yeah. And, um, if you've worked in it, it's also easy to say, I don't want to do that again. Um, and if you haven't worked in it, it's really easy to say, I never want to work in that industry at all, even though they're paying, you know, 50, 60% sure. more. Yep. And so uh, what we find like in marketing, first of all, marketing in our industry is, is pretty specialized. Um, it's not marketing in the sense of trying to acquire a million new users a month. It's in the sense of trying to build really meaningful relationships with people in an industry that is extremely technical and specialized. So there's a there's sort of a niche to that. Yeah, makes and sense. our VP of marketing is like very much in that industry and has a background in that, and so it's perfect perfect role for her. That's Liz Graz. Um, our VP of finance has a construction background, so technically we, we're in the AEC industry, architecture, engineering, and construction. And so there's a whole industry of people that have background in that. They have affiliation with that. They understand it, and it makes sense to them. And that's their chosen industry. I'm a little bit of a atypical in that I, I sort of switch industries, but I stay in the same function, but yeah. our VP of finance comes from construction industry. So for her, this was a kind of a smooth transition. Interesting. Also to, to answer that question, to go a little bit more specifically, we as a company have a really lovely offering in the sense that we are a very, very wonderful company to work in. And, uh, you know, been talking a lot about relationships and people and, I, you know, I feel like I just put on my PR hat here for a second, but it's, it's really true to answer your question there, which is that I could tell immediately when I sat down to meet with our CEO that I was having a, a very humane personal conversation with somebody who had a lot of passion about the business and the people that he was responsible for. And that was just, um, you, you could, you could almost, it was almost a, physical sensation of understanding that, that emotion and that perspective. And so that's very attractive to people that are used to that grind and that sure. very impersonable metric centered way of operating and, and build fast, grow, 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 sell, tear it down, leave that kind of a thing. That's not really what people at WRA are interested in doing. They're looking for long-term sustainable ways of living. Makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And it is one of the reasons why people are attracted to a culture is the leader. I want to go back to when you were joining the company and you did that, that time block of, of interviewing staff. Were there a couple of, of specific kind of questions or themes that you focused on when you were doing that, that, that you got the biggest bang for your buck on? Wait, I wish I could remember the specific questions. I have them written down, but I haven't looked at them for a few months. 
Um, but the, the general themes that I was looking for were, well, first of all, I had an, a formal organizational assessment to read before I even started. So I understood sort of the analytical synthesized viewpoint of what was going well and what was not going well. So um, what I was really looking for is understanding what people's individual experiences were working there. So I wanted to know what was working well for them, what was frustrating for them, what their hopes were for the company, um, where they saw themselves going forward, what they wanted me to be thinking about as I got my feet on the ground. Yeah. Looking back on it, uh, you know, I had some specific questions and, and I had this dual focus of I want to get this lay of the land through these series of questions and, and a secondary or you know equal but uh, dual focus of like getting to know people. Looking back on it, the primary benefit of that time was the getting to know people. Yeah. OK. And so it, it's almost irrelevant at this point what I asked them. It's the fact that I spent time time with them, with people. Yeah, and just to clarify too, you know, I interviewed about twenty people, um, not twenty hours a week, twenty people. But it felt like a lot because I was just onboarding with so much, and it's the, that fire hose spraying me in the face and trying to sit down quietly with somebody three to four times a week for an hour of just focused conversation time. It was that was my primary focus even though it wasn't necessarily the majority of my time, but it, it was really like the thing that everything else was revolving around. It's interesting that you mentioned the book, The First 90 Days as well. I think I, I was exposed to that a couple of decades ago as well. And it seems to still be that kind of solid book on transition. Was there, was there a time where you had some, some ideas from these discussions where you wanted to execute and you had to pull back? And how did you pull back from you know, executing too soon on some of those ideas? You know, I would say that... Um, I'm kind of in this place where I'm reflecting on my first year, my anniversary is in about two weeks. And so I would actually say that I did not quite get the lesson to pull back until very recently. You know, and I started the end of September and I was trying to revise a bonus plan, trying to revise an evaluation process, trying to revise the compensation strategy for the next year. And that was just uh, foolish and overly ambitious. And, um, you know, it was, the reason was because it was one of the, some of the top items that people had shared that they sure. were concerned with. And so one of the things I had to grapple with a little bit was how much of this is me trying to do good by the company versus how much of this is me trying to prove myself to people that I don't really need to prove myself to. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And so I, I was pretty real with myself about that, that my motive was really that I saw a great opportunity to serve people better and to help them to have an experience that they really not only needed, but really knew that they needed and felt was really detracting from their ability to, to be at their fullest at work. So there was this ambiguity around what it meant to promote for the company, ambiguity around, well, we're at the same level, but like, I'm so much more experienced than her or him. And, and like, that just these questions that were kind of getting in the way. So you know, you might actually call that the political stuff that you asked me about earlier. It was just less relevant to me directly. And so uh, I had a real desire to address those things. Um, and it just, it just wasn't possible. And then oh. when coronavirus hit, we shifted gears radically to just sort of crisis management. And now as we're kind of uh, leveling out a little bit with coronavirus, I've been resuming my attention to that stuff, but having to recognize like, People don't want it to change that fast. They want it to change very 
slowly, especially on top of all of the stress and anxiety. I love that you got introspective enough to understand whether you're doing it for the good of the company or just to kind of prove yourself and build the relationships with people. It's pretty introspective to, to think about it at that level. How about um, in terms of, of people and, and the, your direct reports, how do, you, how do you work with them? How do you lead them? How do you manage them? How do you, um, you know, get results through them? Do you have any, any thoughts or, or systems around that? Yeah. So I have basically two realms of responsibility. One is the, the internal operations of the company. Um, and two, well, it's really three realms, but in terms of direct reports, there's the internal operations of the company. Then there is uh, client facing operations. And then there's executive team strategy, that kind of thing. But to, to your question, the first two are the most relevant. And so um, the internal operations is kind of like my my wheelhouse, you might say, or that's my, that's my um, platform for everything. So um, purchasing, admin facilities, reception, uh, technology, IT administration, all of that kind of nuts and bolts stuff. Yep. Um, so I have a small team of people there. There was a little bit of restructuring there to kind of orient the team more towards a, a more of a dis- distributed perspective rather than a facility centric perspective. So that was sort of a improvement, I would say, when I started. And um, I have, it's a fairly junior team um, relative to um, the other people that I work with. Um, But that's kind of my expertise. So what I do there is that I just sort of guide them through some essential processes for the company. And then I spend a lot of time exploring um, personal development, leadership development principles with them. And it's, I use that team. So I'm the team leader of that group but they're sort of like a standalone group too. And I use that team to sort of pilot and test a lot of the things that I want to roll out to the rest of the company. Makes sense. Yeah. And it's kind of a nice environment because um, they can handle the, the transition of, you know, the constant tinkering and experimenting because they're not doing client facing work. And so we don't want to be trying things out all the time on client projects, but we try it on internal projects. The other group, uh, which is predominantly what we call project delivery teams. So that's uh, eight team leaders that each manage a team of, you know, five to 10 people each. And there's a, we have a very interesting relationship uh, with those folks and I, because they're deep technical experts in their fields of which I am not even a novice um, and have no expectations of becoming any sort of expert in their fields. And so we have a very, uh, very personal relationship rather than functional relationship in the sense that I am very much like a service leader in that I'm there to enable them to be successful as much as possible. And so uh, I, and, and I, how, do you, how do you do that? How do you enable them? And because and, it's an interesting um, kind of conversation around when you get to a certain level or certain size company, you're often leading people that are, have deep functional expertise more than you ever will, more than any of us ever will. How, how do you work with them? Like, how do you, um, is it growing them, aligning, their, aligning them, removing obstacles for them, supporting them? How do you work with them? Yeah, I'd say there's three things. So I'll go in order of simplicity to complexity. The first one is if they're just operational needs, you know, there's things that are kind of getting in the way, um, little process changes or hit glitches in the system that they need. Like, you know, like we, we have a monthly invoicing cycle with clients and there's always some 
questions around late invoices, you know, what's going on with this client, that client. And so I just smooth out that process with them a little bit and set up a real simple way to keep them sort of ahead of the curve of questions that, that will be asked about where they're at with their clients. Um, little things like that. Um, and then when I can deploy the operations, the internal operations team to smooth things out. So that's used to be more facility related things. Now it's more technology related things. If there's just glitches or something breaks, um, I just deploy the, the operations team there. The thing that I am um, spending most of the time with though is in people management and um, helping team leaders to navigate some of the challenges of trying to grow their teams, trying to manage the team's anxiety through coronavirus and being distributed, um, trying to address specific challenges. Um, I'm, I'm, I kind of operate in the more abstract relational space and our CEO is, you know, 15 years background. He's, he's a technical person who's risen through the ranks to, to be the CEO, but he understands the business development side and the delivery side. So what ends up happening a lot with those team leaders is that they'll work with him uh, on a specific project and he'll have a certain level of oversight or responsibility on, on a handful of projects even, even now because he's cultivated those relationships and he's very much like a, a business development centric CEO. Yep. And I'm very much like a people and systems centric COO. And the third one is, is what I would call systems. And that's the one that I've been talking about mostly here, which is where I'm actually very frustrated with this at this point because I have a vision in my head of 90 degree turn on how our systems work from ERP, project management, what tools we use, how, what our weekly, monthly, quarterly cadences of all of that client facing work, uh, what our people development programs look like. And it's, it's the usual issue of, bandwidth resourcing you know the the ideas far exceed the capacity to execute and then what we've been talking about for most of the day today too is just trying to pace all of that change appropriately with level people's tolerance for change and the yeah. and the stress that comes from it so i'm really in the business right now of just trying to figure out what the best first next step is and letting the rest wait because it's just too much to take on all at one time. Well, it's interesting. You go back to that, like working on the critical few things versus the important many. And and I like I like that you mentioned just slowing things down. How about with your own growth as a leader? Where have you had to work on yourself and and your growth and skills over the years the most? Do you think? Um, I I would say the most important one is uh, arrogance and humility and. Um, you know, particularly coming into the new company, like I said earlier, you know, I, I had to be really mindful that the, my motivation for the speed at which I wanted to operate was in, in a, from a service mindset, not a self-centered trying to, trying to earn credit mindset, that kind of thing. But that manifests in a lot of small ways too. So um, I think one of the reasons why it's taken me so long to, to recognize the need to um, be more deliberate in our organizational change is that I feel very strongly that it will be better for everybody once we are able to make more changes. And I have to really just um, set aside my ideas about what we need and listen to people more about what they actually want. And um, I, I feel very strongly that our people are a primary asset. I mean, everybody would agree with that statement, but this is where the, the rubber meets the road is that, okay, 
So am I going to actually listen to them and hear what they're saying about what they need and why they need it? And am I going to change my perspective and change my intentions and how I execute going forward based on that? And this interview is an interesting transition point for me because I very clearly have that realization now, but I have not yet responded in terms of laying out what the roadmap is going to look like accordingly. So uh, I'm sort of coming out of the crisis mode of coronavirus and deep in that realization, but now I'm at the inflection point of moving into the next quarter, the next year of how am I going to play that out? Yeah, it sounds like you've been pretty deep in situational leadership versus like, um, you know, a a project rollout or a plan rollout as well. If we were to go back to to you as the 21-year-old self, what, what advice would you give yourself you know, 21, 22 years old, leaving university that, you know, maybe you know to be true today, but you didn't know, you wish you'd known back then? Yeah, that's a good question. So I I have spent the majority of my career thinking that everybody else figured it out way before me, and I have to figure out a way to catch up. And um, that that's, that was just a waste of energy, a waste of time, you know, that that thing of proving oneself, you know, what what's, What's more powerful is tapping into the thing that I'm most motivated by and I'm most passionate about and delivering that. (laughs) That's the thing that's far more powerful than trying to meet some sort of outside expectation. And so I've just spent way too much time trying to figure out what I thought other people wanted of me and less time really going inside and figuring out what I had to offer and bringing that to fruition. Great. It's interesting. We had a a COO Alliance event um, back in February and one of our members said that he, he he pulled me aside at the break and he said, you know, I'm I'm running this 100-person company and I've been the second in command there for about four years. And he said, I feel like a fraud because I feel yeah. like I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure this out as I go all the time. And so I, w- I went back in after the break and I just, I asked him, I said, can I mention that to the group? He's like, yeah, for sure. So I mentioned it to the group and I said, just a quick show of hands, like who here feels like a fraud or that they're figuring it out as they go? And every single yeah. hand went up. And you could just see Brian, he's just like, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. I'm like, dude, none of us have got this shit figured out, man. We're all still, every, every day, it's kind of the biggest thing we've ever done, right? Yeah. Well, you, know, you know what some lessons I learned for that? One is I, I, my, my brother-in-law is very successful professionally. And before I had figured this out, I was talking to him and I said, oh, you know, I'm thinking of writing this book where I interview uh, successful people. And I was, I was thinking professionally successful. I was very narrow focused on that. And I was like, yeah, and I I was thinking of having like a set of questions about how they got to where they're at. He's like, that's, that's a silly idea. It's like mostly luck. And I was like, what, what are you you talking about? He's like, well, you got to be able to do what's, what's available, but really whether you get the opportunity is a lot more to do with luck. Now I don't fully agree with that statement, but when he said it, it caused me to question that. I think there, there is actually a lot of, uh, you know, privilege and background that influences what manifests as quote luck. But, um, but it, it opened my eyes to the idea that I actually was on a bit more of a, of a roller coaster where the track wasn't really defined and I was just along for the ride and I just needed to enjoy it rather than thinking that there was some course charted for me that I needed to try to stay on or something. Right. And try to figure out or find. Yeah. yeah. You know, the other thing though that opened it up for me was that when I, when I went to work at that tech company, you know, I had, I had just spent six years in a federal education system, which is not modern. Okay. (laughs) Uh, uh, great program, but not at all contemporary. And so I went into that organization with a, with a real kind of 
fear and nervousness about whether I could hack it. And um, was just, I spent a lot of time comparing myself to other people thinking, wow, these people really know a lot of stuff I don't know. And yeah, they were all very smart people and they were really impressive people. But over time, what I realized is that particularly in the tech industry in general, they're really holding everything together with duct tape and just growing it as quick as they can and making sure it doesn't break under, under everybody's hands. And when I realized that, I was like, I, I think that's pretty much how most of the world is operating. I was sitting in the boardroom of the CEO of Sprint and I was coaching him, Marcelo Claret. He just sold his first company for over a billion dollars, was appointed as the CEO of Sprint by the, the founder of SoftBank. And Marcelo turned to me and he goes, when will people no longer be the issue? And I started laughing. I'm like, you're the 82nd largest company in the United States. They're always going to be the issue. Like we're, yeah. we're all bumping our heads. All right, Miles, Miles Gullingsrud, the um, COO, president, what's the title? I don't even have it in front of me. I think you're uh, vice president of operations for WRA Environmental Consultants. Thank you so much for sharing with us today on the Second Command podcast. Really appreciate the time. You've been listening to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance founder, Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to us on Himalaya for access to our premium content. For more best practices from industry-leading COOs, visit COOalliance.com.